your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox is alongside us as well. If you recognize the name and the title, it's because we've had this individual on multiple times, and there's a reason for that. It's because you're very talented, not only play-by-play broadcaster, but a podcast host that's really among the best and Honestly, you need to go listen to it right now. Uh, well, of course, not right now, but after you're done here. Just Baseball Podcast hosted by Jack McMullen, our guest today. He is also play-by-play for the Indianapolis Indians, the AAA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Jack, it's great to talk to you. Love talking baseball with you. Take me through what the offseason's been like for you covering this particular one with your show on the Just Baseball podcast and how that's grown since we last talked to you. Well, Mike, first and foremost, you don't need to gas me up. This is already my third time on this podcast, so I'm not going to turn you guys down, Like e- even if you say anything critical about me. So uh, just know that you, you don't need to hype me up anymore moving forward, but I appreciate the hype up. Um, no, this, this offseason has been uh, really interesting because, you know, in the, in the calling games sphere – you're always looking to do some other stuff. Like I was doing uh, Ball State football and basketball now. And, you know, you, you see somebody like, how about Benetti, right? Who's, who's hopping over to Fox and doing that stuff. So you're filling that. But the beauty of doing the podcast, um, and thank you for the plug of the Just Baseball show, wherever you get your podcast. But the beauty of doing that is, you know, I, I hop on Twitter and you read everything you possibly can from every possible source And growing up, I was the weird kid where this was my favorite part of the baseball calendar because you get to play what if all the time. And and what if and playing the game on paper is very fun until the first pitch is thrown in that season. And then what are you doing, right? You're reacting. But where you really get to flex that baseball knowledge is in the predictory phase of it. And uh, I know a whole bunch of baseball nuts love playing predictor and love playing how does this fit in uh, in a certain spot. So I, I've had a blast this offseason, man, and the stove is getting hot and has gotten hot at the right time. Yeah, it has been. And like, you know, I was really looking forward to the the arson judge news last <laughs> week. And then, you know, we you talked about that on your podcast and like going through it was crazy. But like, I would just say, like, after following the activity so far, I just kind of think we need to change the way we look at the sport a little bit. Like, I often see the league referred to as the haves, the have nots with all the money being filtered into the game, San Diego Padres in market 27, doing what AJ Preller and Peter Seidler do. I feel like it's as simple as like the haves and the won'ts. And like, we always hear about the the Indians and these other teams, like they can't spend like this. Right. And like, look, they, they probably can't spend as much as some of these other clubs, but like I just said it, the Padres are market 27. So like, what are your thoughts just overall on this current landscape that we're seeing? Yeah. So I kind of love it and I love it because I, I think you worded it perfectly there. And I, I saw you put that out on Twitter and I said, damn, that, that's a great line from James because 
I, I think every major league baseball team can outspend and outcommit their owner's net worth, right? You look at um, somebody like the guy in Cincinnati who is rolling out like a you know six hundred million dollar net worth, right? I never want to hear, whether it be from the commissioner or uh, anybody else, that MLB teams at the lowest level lose money because they don't, right? You, you net how much of a profit and. Mike, you know, James, you know, and every fan listening to this knows how much they spend on you, a wife and two kids to go to a ball game and the kids want a hot dog and then they want a Sunday as well. And of course they need it in that signature helmet, not to mention, you know, all the RSN feeds that that we're getting right. And how about the national telecast too? The deals are massive. The tickets are getting more expensive. A beer is $14. Everybody has enough money to operate in a competitive manner. Um, I don't think it's limited to the ownership's net worth. And I I love that you say the haves and the won'ts because the quote unquote penny pinchers in baseball, they could expand a little bit. And I think you see that best exemplified with Tampa, right? They were apparently fully in in the Freddie Freeman sweepstakes last year. They were rumored to be in in the Jacob deGrom sweepstakes this year. If they want to hand out that contract, and they did with Wander Franco, they can do it. So it's not a matter of limitations. It's knowing that you will profit, and what will you do with that profit? Will you pocket it? Will you commit it to the guys that are currently on the roster? Or will you go out and add to your roster? Yeah, so, I mean, just like, I think we're about to see it like even with the Cubs a little bit, I fear. And like, you know, it's a White Sox podcast, but following along just to, you know, kind of some of the, you know, the intelligent spending stuff, right? And for years we've heard it and intelligent spending, collusion, every team kind of valued players the same way. And it was, you know, a lot of these talking points prior to the lockout and what we went through last year. Um, new, There's like a new breed of ultra-educated front office executives. So like the shift this year, do you think there's really a shift or is this just like a few rogue owners that have kind of taken back over like in a few markets and then it's a little bit twofold, right? Like Steve Cohen, like is Steve Cohen and this type of thing, is it good for baseball? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to say yes and no. It's good and bad for baseball. But what I will say is I think the pros of Steve Cohen heavily outweigh the cons of Steve Cohen. And I'll start with the cons because I think they're lesser. The cons are, and the main one is that you have this major power imbalance in baseball, right? If, you know, if Nimmo's on the market and Verlander's on the market and Kodai Senga's on the market and they corner that and they outspend and they're willing to pay more in penalty taxes than other teams have committed in their payroll, that is probably bad because then you've got Mets A's coming up in Queens and nobody wants to go to that game unless you want to see a murder on a baseball field. And I, I think that is the con. And the the way you best look at it if you're trying to cross sports, because I feel like a lot of people want to compare baseball to something. And the salary conversation, the cap conversation or lack thereof is really best tied to soccer. And what a time in the World Cup, right? Where you've got, you know, these four semifinal teams, Argentina, Croatia, France, Morocco, right? You look at the best player on three of their teams. Argentina, Messi, he plays for Paris Saint-Germain. 
France, Kylian Mbappe plays for Paris Saint-Germain. Morocco, Hakimi plays for Paris Saint-Germain. So here you are, you've got this massive spender and they're cornering the market. So when you're watching the World Cup, when you're watching international soccer, you're seeing all these guys, you see the best player, huh, I wonder what team they're on where I can watch them every year. And chances are they're on a list of five teams. That's where baseball is moving, right? That's what we've seen with the Dodgers. That's kind of what we're seeing with the Mets. Every notable guy is going to end up when they do hit free agency on one of these five teams. Now, I'd much rather have that if there are no rules in place than a lack of commitment to doing much of anything. And I I think the major pro of Steve Cohen is you've got a rich guy that bought into baseball that wants to see his favorite baseball team win. And that is so important because if there are no rules, if there are no parameters of a floor and a cap put in place, you want an owner that's going to help your team win. Think about how long the Mets have been second to the Yankees. It's the entirety of that organization's existence. So now going into this coming year, if the Yankees don't add a Rodon or add a major free agent still on the market, what are you looking at? I think the Mets tickets are going to be harder to come by than the Yankee tickets. And so much of the appeal is the Yankees, right? It's the same conversation as Cubs and White Sox. I think Cubs tickets will always be harder because it's Wrigley Field, it's the Cubs. But in terms of on-field product and going back to Mets and Yankees, I think the Mets are putting out a better product than the Yankees right now. And that certainly would have been the case if Arson Judge did sign with San Francisco. So I do like that if there are no rules, I want somebody that is going to go over the top to make sure that their favorite team gets stuff done. And that feels like what Steve Cohen is doing. Mike, how, how awesome would it be to be a Mets fan right now? Well, uh, leading up to the last couple of seasons, it, it wasn't a lot of fun. But now you're seeing somebody who owns your team willing to give the fans what they're hoping to see. And that's star-studded talent and what you know the owner believes can win you a championship. And isn't that the whole point of being a Major League Baseball owner is watching your team succeed and then generate profit because of the players on the field and keeping fan interest and making them happy. And it's kind of the antithesis of what we're dealing with in Chicago on the South side. I mean, flat out, so many fans are frustrated. Now you look at it at a macro level, Jack, and all of that is so fascinating. I want to kind of break it down a little bit because we just went through a CBA and the luxury tax is increased by a certain percentage over the next few seasons. But you brought up the Mets. They're over $100 million over the luxury tax. Clearly, they don't care. They're going to pay the tax and all the penalties. But when you're looking at some of the free agents now, and I think about the qualifying offer and how much it's impacted free agents in the past, it used to be a first-round pick that you're surrendering if there was a player that you signed who had a qualifying offer attached to their name. Now it's a second-round pick plus international money, and then it kind of trickles down the line. If you had already signed a guy with a qualifying offer attached, it goes to the third, fourth, and so on. But, Jack, let me throw it to you here. You have three of the top starters left on the market, and Iavoli and Chris Bassett and, and Carlos Rodon at this point of the offseason. And like I said, a brand-new CBA, yet the qualifying offer attached that is rewarded to um, – a second-round pick is rewarded to a team who offered the qualifying offer to a player, and that player declined. I know there's a lot here. Uh, but that's that remained. The qualifying offer stipulation remained. And I don't know what your opinion is on that and how it impacts the market, but I just feel like with the international draft likely coming, which yeah. will have to open up a whole new CBA negotiation in that regard, I just wonder how much all of this is impacting the Players Association, how the players feel about it, and what the owners are saying as well. 
I love talking off-season baseball. I, I like I love it because instead of assessing uh, instead of assessing on-field production, we can have these types of conversations. And instead of you know going out on a Friday night in college, I was here trying to Wikipedia and, and Google uh, how all this stuff works. So I love that we are really flexing these muscles, and I love that you guys flex the same muscles that I want to. Um, and that's a great question because. I, I think that it really has to line up with the window. I think the right team can surrender these things by signing a free agent who rejected a qualifying offer. So what I mean by that is you need to make sure that you are in the winning window and you don't and you truly believe that present success will outweigh um, some some ankle weights put on you in the future. So a guy like Carlos Rodan, I'm not sure why he's not signed yet because there are a lot of teams that want to win in the postseason and make it to the World Series and have a chance at winning the World Series that should be paying Carlos Rodon right now because you should not care about the penalties if you have a chance to win the World Series in 2023. Now, a guy like Bassett or even Yavaldi, I understand the pushback because if a contender adds Chris Bassett, what are the chances that Bassett puts up a four ERA exponentially higher than Carlos Rodon, in my opinion, because Rodon is so much more talented. So I, I think it's almost this, this twofold vetting process that you need to go to uh, or go through if you are a front office, right? How good is the player? Where's your window? And, and I think that there are a lot of teams within the winning window that would really benefit from a guy like Rodon and I think would somewhat benefit from a guy like Bassett or Uvalde. If I had to guess the first one off the board, it would be Carlos Rodon because there's going to be a contender that just says F it and puts the chips in and doesn't care about the penalties and wants one of the best left-handers on planet Earth on their team. Yeah, so I mean, I think it does go back kind of to like the wonks, right? Like we were talking about these front office people and like I, I just think it's all about the valuation, and me and Mike have talked about this often. Like, if you think Carlos Rodon is worth whatever six at one fifty, is he also worth six at one fifty? The second round pick and the one and a half million that comes with it, and five hundred k in international space, right? So, yep. like, yeah, I would say yes. Like for Carlos Rodon, like yes, who cares? Absolutely. But if you're a team like the Cubs in a big market where you're, you know, you're trying to contend but not really, and you have a top fifty pick. Like, are you giving up, like, the 50th pick in the draft to sign Chris Bassett? Like, I would think no. Like, for, for a difference-making shortstop, absolutely, right? And then whatever. Like, then it's it, it just, like, changes because the small market team gives up the third rounder for Chris Bassett. That makes a lot more sense. So I just think, like, it, it does kind of kill the market for some of these guys, even though, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things it shouldn't. But the way front offices think kind of, like, does this to some of these guys. Yeah. And that's the current structure. Like that's the nature of the beast. And Chris Bassett, you know, it was a question to offer him the qualifying offer or not. And that's why, you know, I personally lean on the side of if that's a conversation, don't do it. Um, now, there are some guys where where it does make sense that they might accept like a Martin Perez. That made a lot of sense to to shell him out the qualifying offer because it would be great if you retained him and, and you're fine with that one year deal. If not, then you get compensation. But um, for, for a team like the Mets and for somebody like Chris Bassett, when he was extended the qualifying offer, part of my mind went to maybe he should take that 
And because he didn't, his market is hindered a little bit. So I really only think we're having these conversations about guys that may have benefited from taking the qualifying offer, where if it's very cut and dry, this is going to get extended. The team will get compensated because this player is too good to accept that deal. The market will still be there for that player. The market may not be there for a guy like Bassett, where, you know, bringing up your point about Rodon, right? Where it's absolutely worth the, if you were to value all the, all the knickknacks that come along with, you know, surrendering somebody that declined the qualifying offer, um, you know, that pushes his value from 150 million to about 154 million, 155. That's no problem. But when you take a guy and push his value from, if you're Chris Bassett, 45 or 50 million to 55 or 60 million, that's a lot. That That's a lot more. And that's a larger percentage than what we're talking about with Rodon. So I, I think that's where the issue lies. Yeah, you make such good points there, Jack. And I think about what you would give Chris Bassett without the qualifying offer versus with it attached. And I think of as well with the Tampa Bay Rays ponying up for Zach Eflin. I mean, when I yeah. say ponying up, $40 million over three years is not for nothing. I mean, yeah. that is for an organization like that to spend on Zach Eflin. One, their scouting and, and analytics scouts, I'm sure, see something that they like in that arm. But I, to me, Eflin isn't anything special, and we see the Rays spending for him. But I think that's more of the trend this offseason because we're seeing players get paid over value. But I, I'm thinking the new CBA, we touched on it a little bit, created some new rules and we're seeing the banning of the shift. Do you see in the offseason organizations targeting a certain type of player, recognizing that they can maybe benefit more in adding them because of these rule changes specifically within the shift? That's a great question. And I think my initial reaction is no, I, I don't because and listen, the San Diego Padres are doing their own unique thing. And I, I've got no clue where that money's coming from, but um, they, I don't think it matters. Like, it's going to be there. It's like uh, what that Colorado AD talking about uh, the Dion signing after Dion Sanders accepted the head coach job, right? He was like, uh, yeah, we don't have the money, but it'll be here eventually. I'm confident that it'll be here. So I feel like that might be the parameters that San Diego is operating with right now. But you look at Xander Bogarts, he's a shortstop whose job is increased exponentially defensively because of the, the banning of the shift. Like his range needs to get better. And this is a guy that they just signed through his age 40 season or 41 season. And you know, his range is going to diminish. He is a newfound solid defensive shortstop. He was not a good defensive shortstop before then he got better, but naturally age will take away from that. And father time is undefeated. Um, but the Padres still had to pay him a lot of money. Also, I think Joey Gallo would have been off the board already if, if the banning of the shift actually mattered that much, because Gallo is the poster boy for issues with the shift. It was also Kyle Schwarber. Schwarber got paid before we knew this was happening. Um, so now all eyes turn to Joey Gallo. Have we seen that massive power bat come off the market? No. Have we seen a shortstop with limited defensive range take a pay cut because of the shift ban? No. So my overwhelming reaction is no. I don't think there's much of a change here. And that shows you how offensively dominant this game is. Xander Bogarts is going to struggle in his late 30s defensively. Who knows if he'll be at short or if he will be a full-time DH. 
what you do know is you're getting a guy that can lead the league in doubles every year. That's why San Diego commit 280 million to him over 11 years, which was absurd. So yeah, that is a very long way of saying, I don't think it Mm -hmm. changes much. Yeah, I think about it because of the way that the Players Association really pushed for wanting players defensively to have more of an impact on the outcomes of games outside of positioning, right, where your your data suggests that a ball is going to go here and it typically does up the middle. And if you take that away, it forces a shortstop, second base, third baseman to make more difficult plays and that just increases value. And I mean, that's on a different topic, but somewhat related. I wanted to speak on that because I think baseball wants more balls in play and pitchers with the pitch clock, I think is they're going to start to feel the fatigue where um, outside of max effort, where they get swing and misses more often than not, maybe the ball is put in play more because of the pitch clock and because of the more space on the infield. And I just want to know your opinion on the way the game may be shifting, pardon the pun or the way I worded that, but I'm just curious if the game is finally moving away from the three true outcomes, or if you think we're still a ways away from that. God, I hope so. I hope so. Um, it has become a product that is harder and harder to watch. And I'm talking to two guys that that love this game and won't ever go away from this game, I'm sure, regardless of how three true outcomey it becomes. And it's already, I, I think, hit full throat in, in that regard. I, I think it has already become as strikeout and home run oriented as we will ever get. And I'm very excited for baseball to cycle back. Baseball works in cycles. Last time we saw this home run and strikeout output was the steroid era. After that, there was a lull in that. And here we go again. So this sports cycles, um, I think that the rule changes will greatly benefit that. And I'm telling you, I'm so excited for this pitch clock. Having seen it up close and personal for the entirety of this past AAA season, I mean, it is beautiful. And there are guys that have never needed it, right? Watching Wade Miley or, you know, in, in Sox terms, Mark Burley try and speed run a baseball game is excellent. And and it is so aesthetically beautiful. And in terms of the greater scheme of your day, it's beautiful to show up to the ballpark for, for a 105 first pitch and be out of there by 345 for a Burley game. We may get that, but I, I think a lot of guys will will be pushed into that. And, and the beauty of it is I, I think it allows less time to reset for pitchers, which creates an emphasis on strike throwing, right? And, and think about how dominating a 90-second half inning could be. You don't even need to get strikeouts. A 1-2-3 inning without the pitch clock can still take seven minutes six or seven minutes. Now, a one, two, three inning with a pitch clock could take two minutes, two and a half minutes. And if you roll three ground balls in six pitches, we're looking at a 90-second half inning, which I think is as big a momentum swing as you could possibly have, because that is the shutdown inning of all shutdown innings, especially if you're coming off of a run-producing inning uh, on the offensive side and you get to get right back to the bats within a, a five-minute break. So I think that that this is really going to benefit. I think the fans are going to absolutely love it. Uh, my co-host, Arm Layton, and I went on a, a trip in the Deep South to watch some minor league baseball, and it was his first time firsthand experiencing the pitch clock. And I, I, I told him, we were in Biloxi. We were driving to the ballpark, and I said, 
I can't wait for you to see this and, and get your reaction. And he he dismissed it because he was like, oh, it, it's not going to be that much of a difference. And in the fourth inning or fifth inning, he said, this is night and day. It feels like a different game. And, and I think that a lot of people will love how this sport changes. And I think it will result in some more balls in play. Yeah, it's good to hear. And that's what seemingly like everybody that's seen it has kind of said the same thing. Even the people that didn't really think they were going to like it at first. Like we talked to a lot of minor league people, right? And they seem to echo those sentiments. So I'm going to apologize to you ahead of time. We're 24 minutes in and I finally have to talk about the White Sox. So <laughs> You're I'm, 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 yeah, I'm very sorry for that. But, you know, like, you know, I'm sure you've seen it. The, the angst all over White Sox, Twitter and everywhere else. And look, the, the White Sox aren't acting like the Pirates and the Reds and the Marlins and some of those teams, right? But they they don't do extra. And when Rick Hahn says things like, you know, we can't throw money at the problem. And like, I don't necessarily think that's his fault. It's how much will Jerry Reinsdorf spend. But like right now, they should emphatically be throwing money at the problem, right? So just like in this landscape, like can they compete operating the way that they have like their preferred strategy that they've always used. I feel like they they're going to have to change here organizationally. What do you think about that? I agree with you to a certain point, you know, so much of the White Sox fan in me has been frustrated. Yes. By the reluctance to throw money at the problem. And, and you've got Andrew Benintendi and Conforto still sitting out there in the ether. And I think those would be wonderful additions. They're going to be a, a higher bill than Joey Gallo, but I would love, as a White Sox fan, if they threw eight for 162 at Brandon Nimmo. Uh, they didn't do it. They won't do it. I think that they've made it clear. And and reading the tea leaves for the last couple of months, it always seemed like they were going to be more active in the trade market than the free agent market, especially after how this season went and how the deadline or lack thereof for them went. Um, it was obvious that they were not willing to make big splashes. But so much of the White Sox fan in me is still holding on to this optimism that I, I'm not sure should be there or not anymore. But the optimism that the White Sox will run out an 80 to 90 game stretch where everybody's healthy and, and Luis Robert is healthy and performing the way that we know he can if he stays on the field, that Eloy Jimenez doesn't try and jump over a wall and tear a peck. Um, that, that Tim Anderson stays on the field, that Yohan Moncada, you know, is not hampered by whatever's going on. And he can reach that Yohan Moncada talent level that we saw just a couple of years ago where, yeah, the strikeout numbers are up, but but the OBP is astronomically high and he can pump out 25 homers. Um, and the pitching, like if, if Giolito can get back on the right foot and if Dylan Cease continues to ascend the way that we know he can ascend and if Michael Kopech really leans into this, you know, maybe final form of starting pitcher that that we saw at the beginning of this year in the front half of this year and Lance Lynn continues to be the workhorse. There are enough pieces on this team to win the American League Central. I, I think every White Sox fan knows that internally, but because we haven't seen them together at any point, we keep wanting to add. We are in such great need of a contingency plan and it feels like there's no contingency plan. There hasn't been clearly a contingency plan the last couple of years. And that's what's done them in. I mean, like on this podcast, obviously, like we, we talk about certain guys, right? Like, like I'm excited to see Oscar Colas. Like, I think that 
teams in their window have to use prospects sometimes. Like teams like the Braves, they do it all the time, right? But the White Sox currently have one outfielder. So, yeah. like, I'm fairly certain they're going to add, like, a left-handed hitting outfielder to play left field, right? But, like, I just, like, I we none of us know what the budget is. And there's been all these rumors about trades. Like, what, like, what is the better path for them right now? Like, if, if they have no money, do you just, you know, get somebody to play, like, whatever. Like, whether it's Joey Gallo or who, whoever. Like, is that a better plan than looking to see if you can spin off a Lucas Giolito and Liam Hendricks and look in good trades, right? They're not going to dump them for nothing. Like you get back stuff that's beneficial and then reallocate the money. Do you think something like that is more useful or do you just try to patch up left field, go to work in the first half and see how it goes? My mind just immediately went to like, if you could DM or text like a, a Fegan or a Chuck Garfine and just have him ask Rick Hahn, like, Hey, what, what's the budget for the outfield? Just, that quick question to, to Han, right? Three words. What's the budget? I think every White Sox fan would love to hear that answer because it would give us closure for once. Uh, but we're not going to get that answer, obviously. I don't think patching up the outfield is a good option because if we've learned anything over the last couple of years, it's that they will put a first baseman out there. And uh, that is not something that I think any White Sox fan needs to relive after Sheets and Vaughn commanded the corners. Andrew Vaughn should be the everyday first baseman for the White Sox now that Jose is an Astro. Uh, and Gavin Sheets should should DH a little bit. I don't think he should be an everyday bat because the production hasn't been there to warrant everyday at bats. But I would love if they added by adding and not adding by subtracting from the farm that we know is bottom third in baseball. Um, I, I think being in tune with the farm like you guys are and do so well you know that there's a bit more talent there than the national media and the prospect um, folks will give the White Sox credit for. Um, like, you know, guys like Wes Koth, he, he could actually be a big leaguer at some point, but not a lot of the national prospect people are, are willing to admit that there is some depth. You just look at the top 10 and it's it's a thinner top 10 than the overwhelming majority of, of farm systems around Major League Baseball. So I'd prefer to keep everybody that could be a major league contributor and throw money at the problem. And do I think Andrew Benintendi is a perfect fit? I do. Do I think Conforto is still a damn solid fit? I do. Um, would I be happy with Gallo, even though I don't think that he's a great fit? I would, because that just shows that you're willing to put money in the places that you know you need to improve. I have no idea if they're going to do it or not. I have no idea if they have a certain trade target that they really want to hammer and they're willing to depart with, you know, a, a Vera or other guys in order to do it. I would prefer if they didn't because you got to hold on to, to what you have right now because the farm is relatively thin and it, it doesn't look like you're going to be getting that top five, top 10 pick for the next couple of years because even in an injury riddled White Sox season, they're still going to win north of 70 games, which will keep you out of the top five. You know, as you're going through this, as we stay on the White Sox topic, a couple more for you, Jack. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, of course. It's the way that we're seeing the White Sox budget, like the payroll, highest payroll in franchise history last year, nor, uh, very close to $200 million, but still $30 million under the luxury tax. And we know that this ownership doesn't want to distribute any funds to the rest of the league because of a luxury tax penalty. So I'm looking at the way that the White Sox are saying, hey, this is the budget and this is how we want to win. And 
you look around the league, I'm not talking about $100 million over the luxury tax here, but those who are willing to spend are spending. But the White Sox seem to really want to count on a positive bounce back from so many of their core players that had bad seasons last year and relying on health. It's been upsetting for White Sox fans, and I don't blame them for feeling this way because there's really no evidence to suggest that these players who they committed to ahead of arbitration uh, are capable of putting together a full season that's good enough to put you in contention for a World Series. And, you know, on that topic, we're thinking of organizational development. The White Sox went through a few changes at the top in Mike Shirley leading the amateur draft, and we give credit to Marco Patti all the time. Mm-hmm. The way that they're building the organization and moving forward in biomechanics reminds me a little bit of how you are looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates. And when the Rule 5 happened, and I see that 15 players, did I get that right? Was it 15 players plucked from the Pirates in the Rule 5 this year? I think so, yeah, in the Major League and Minor League phase. So what does that say to you about the about some organizations and the way that they value building from within? I mean, you got organizations that do both in LA and it's they're kind of an anomaly but there is no small market is what I'm trying to say right like all of these owners are are capable of spending and putting money into the product on field however we're looking at some like the White Sox who are really banking on internal options organizationally what do you think of the way that teams can rely on organizational development versus those who are willing to spend so much on the on-field talent I love that you bring this up because this is a conversation that I think not a lot of baseball fans are willing to have. Does that make sense? Like, I I think that a lot of baseball fans would prefer to see, and I know the sex appeal is greater when they sign a player, right? When when you sign a player that is beat up on your team in a series or or you've seen hit a home run on Sunday Night Baseball, you're going to get more juiced. But when you grab the wonderkind in the pitching development part of your organization, chances are all the pitchers that are already there and maybe some of the $10,000 Dominican Summer League guys are going to get a lot better from the organizational changes, right? You look at how the Astros have done it. Yeah, obviously they paid big money on extensions to Altuve and Bregman and Alvarez at about the midway point of this year. But I mean, Jeremy Pena was a shortstop at the University of Maine. Like, he was obviously developed really well. And then you you look at the rotation. Yeah, McCullers is a big ticket guy. Obviously, Justin Verlander was a massive ticket guy. Christian Javier and Framber Valdez were $10,000 free agents. And the worry about Framber Valdez was how fragile is he? Is he going to get through a major league season? And he has become a bowling ball sinker and one of the best uh, innings eaters in all of Major League Baseball. That's what development can do for you. That's what spending on the organization and in player development will get you. So every team can spend. I think that's a perfect way to put it. Every team can spend. Question is, where do you spend the money? And it's much, much cheaper and maybe even more rewarding to spend off the field to generate better talent on the field and have them become this talent that you know could be in there? How do you get your players to tap in to their best possible outcome? Tampa has done an excellent job at that. You mentioned the Dodgers. They do both. Cleveland has done an excellent job at that. And they ID guys. Cleveland, in terms of starting pitching, goes after pitchability college arms 
and they turn them into stuff-oriented guys because they've got stuff teachers in that organization. Baltimore has a plan of attack right now. Where's the White Sox plan of attack? I think Ethan Katz is doing a great job spearheading that. Let's see them build a department around what Ethan Katz is preaching. If you've got more guys that are selling what Katz is selling, you're going to have a lot of guys buy. And I think that there can be these pop-up pitchers and guys that take this massive jump. Look at Davis Martin. I have no idea how much Ethan Katz helped Davis Martin, but he proves that you can make a drastic jump when the stuff gets a lot better. And if you can get up to 95, 96 and find that right grip, find the right way to spin a breaking ball out of your hand, it can become a good breaking ball. I mean, hell, look at how how Katz helped Carlos Rodon mix in a curveball like 5% of the time, 6% of the time. It's a new look. So I, I love what you bring up about spending elsewhere because I think that could almost be more beneficial. Now, it's much easier to hit on the player than it is to hit on the wonderkind in pitching development or in, you know, hitter analysis in a front office because you've got however many Ivy League kids that, you know, want to jump into a baseball front office, how many are going to pan out versus, hey, this dude's really good at baseball. Let's go sign him to big money and chances are he's going to be really good at baseball for us. Yeah, so I, I know you're a basketball guy and, you know, like there's the just like the the NBA draft like does their lottery every year and it's it's always so interesting, right? Well, baseball finally did something similar. It's different because it's the first six picks. What what did you think? Just overall thoughts on you know how they did the draft lottery the other night, and what's the feeling in Pittsburgh right now because of it? I thought it was excellent because the Pirates won. It would have sucked if the Pirates didn't win. <laughs> um, no, oh, man, could you like could you imagine like Oakland? My God. Oh. That is, oh, I know you picked right. six. Yikes. <laughs> Do you remember the scenes when New Orleans got the number one overall pick and they knew that they won the Zion sweepstakes? Yeah, yeah, for like sure. That was, that was crazy. And obviously I've seen the video of the Knicks reacting when they won the Ewing sweepstakes. And that's the rush that can come from that. Um, I think this was the perfect first year to do it because there's a very clear top two and I think that it aligns with Pittsburgh's window. And obviously, um, they were ecstatic. Like the the official team account tweeted out a bunch of letters that didn't create a word or anything. You know, that's what you do when you're super excited. I think everybody's really excited because UID, um, th- this kid at LSU, Dylan Cruz, who can be a corner outfielder and uh, apparently some think is a top 30 prospect in Major League Baseball if he were in a minor league system right now. And then I love this kid, Chase Dolander from Tennessee, this right-hander. He is, if you gave Shane Boz a changeup, um, mid to high 90s fastball. He is a, a data darling, like spin. Uh, he's got a great slider, and he's got a changeup that that nobody can hit. And he throws, you know, fastball slider to righties, fastball changeup to lefty bats. So the question now becomes, who do you want to go with? The clear-cut top college pitcher or the clear-cut top college hitter and top hitter overall. And I think the Pirates really lucked out because their window, and kind of tying it back to to Mike's point about the Pirates 40-man, how they had 15 guys lifted in the major and minor league phases of the Rule 5 draft, they had so many 40-man decisions that they had to make. And obviously, this was a unique Rule 5 draft and a unique 40-man protection because the Rule 5 draft was was canceled last year, so you had double backup 
Now, the, the Pirates had a lot of young guys that are 40-man eligible. O'Neill Cruz is already up. Um, you, you look at a guy like Leover Piguero, he's going to get up in 23. Andy Rodriguez is going to get up in 23. Mike Burroughs, Quinn Priester, they're going to get up in 23. So when do you believe, and I don't want to call it a contending window because I, I think we've learned every team that truly wants to contend needs to supplement with free agents. Um when does the window open to get exponentially better? And I think the answer is more in line with a college pick and a college bat or a college arm than a high school bat or a high school arm. And there are some really good high school bats and arms in this upcoming draft. But I think this was the perfect time. And, and oh, I didn't even mention Henry Davis and Nick Gonzalez. Like they're probably due for a 23 ETA as well. So um, I, I think if you can grab a guy in the 23 draft that's got a late 2024 or opening day 2025 ETA in Cruz or Dolander, you get so excited for it. So I love this lottery. I love the idea that you know you you disincentivize tanking. Um, I, I love the idea that there's something to look forward to in the winter time if you are a fan of one of the worst teams in baseball uh, in terms of you know big league record. And I just love that they did it this year for the very first time because it's such a loaded draft at the top. Yeah, Mike. Uh, Mike knows about my uh, love for and like always pushing for prep players. And the one in your area is going to make some noise. I don't know if it's a clear cut top two right now. Cause I think Max, Max Clark. Is a stud, so yeah, he's going to, he'll be up there and discussed with, and not in, necessarily in Pittsburgh. I think it's Dylan Cruz in Pittsburgh, but you know, Max Clark will be in that discussion. So, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the window or the perceived window. Cause our, my last thing for you is on Brian Reynolds and just like, what, what do you think, the pirates are going to do here. Cause he's clearly not going to sign an extension in Pittsburgh. So like, do you do it now? Do you wait? How, how do you think this ends? My thought is always do it now, do it as quickly as possible because you could be looking at, at the, what if, um, what if we got a return and a guy that might pan out for us instead of just letting him walk for nothing or a pick, if we throw him the qualifying offer and he clearly declines, so obviously like that relationship seems fractured and, you know, hearing the, the comments from a David Bednar and a Ben Charrington and things like that, you know, they say we're professionals, you know, Brian Reynolds is a Pittsburgh pirate. If he's on the pirates roster, like he's, he's absolutely a part of this team and he's a consummate pro. And, um, you know, this is not going to impact absolutely anything. So do I think Brian Reynolds is the pirates opening day center fielder? I do. I would be listening to all offers right now because I, I do think that you can get a lot for him. And each month that passes, less time of control is available for Brian Reynolds. Maximize control. The Nats had to move off of Juan Soto. If they held on to him, it was going to be a big old what if. That's why I truly believe that the Angels... If they are under 500 at the All-Star break, they trade Shohei Otani because you will be playing the what-if game. What if Otani got us the greatest return for a rental ever? Um, and, and I think that that is worth finding out because it's very clear that a relationship like that has been fractured. And if he is going to hop on the market, 
um, he's not going to re-sign with you. So I think Reynolds has has kind of made that clear. I think Reynolds' representation has made that clear. So I would say, listen, Brian Reynolds is available. We want somebody that aligns with our window. We want a young, good big leaguer, or we want a young big leaguer that's still trying to prove themselves and a, a high minors and upper minors prospect. And I think if the Pirates get exactly what they're looking for, there's no point in wasting time moving off of that. That's Jack McMullen. I mean, he told me at the beginning of the podcast not to gas him up anymore, so I don't have to because you just heard why this man is the goods. Listen to the Just Baseball podcast if you enjoy what you're hearing. I don't know why you wouldn't. Jack, thanks for your time. You know, as we were, uh, you know, as I was sitting back listening, I noticed that you talked a lot of pitching. Big fan of pitching, love to evaluate pitching. So next time we talk, I could keep you here for another hour, just strictly looking at all the pitching stuff going on in the league this year and in the foreseeable future. So Jack, you're the man. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Mike, when I was at Oak Park and River Forest High School, they took the bat out of my hands, I think when I was a sophomore. So uh, it was pitching, pitching, and more pitching. So I'm always ready to talk pitching with you guys. And I love talking baseball with you, Mike, and you, James. Uh, Happy to hop on whenever. Love that. That's at Jack underscore McMullen 11 on Twitter. If you want to give him a follow again, the co-host of the Just Baseball podcast. He also does play-by-play for the Indianapolis Indians, the AAA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Probably hear him in the big leagues sometime soon. For James Fox and Jack McMullen, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We release them every Tuesday. Stick with us. We'll have more White Sox focus. We gave you a break this week because we wanted to give you some, some time to digest everything that's going on around Major League Baseball. So until next Tuesday, we'll talk to you then.